Welcome to Classical Etc., a show that dives into the philosophy, culture, and heart of classical education. You're in the studio with Shane Saxon. On today's episode of Classical Etc., <laughs> it's the Christmas episode, not the conspiracy episode. <laughs> and so what we're trying to do today is bring all the warmth, all of the joy, all of the festivity to bear in a conversation about J.R.R. Tolkien, our favorite old writer, old fantasy fiction writer. You qualify it that way. Yeah, I needed to qualify it. That's a huge, huge category. So on today's episode, I've brought in a cast of characters, true characters, who I fictionally refer to as the Goon Squad. And I'm still convincing them this is the best name for this four particular (laughs) gentlemen. Three, really. I'm not actually a part of the Goon Squad. They are. But I need to introduce them. To my right is Dan Scheffler. (laughs) Dr. Dan Scheffler is a professor of philosophy at the Memorial College. On my left is John Christensen, Latin specialist and Latin instructor for various institutions. And to his left is Mitchell Holly, Greek specialist and principal of the Memorial Press Online Academy. And I actually need Mitch's specialties here because I think that For Tolkien, the first time in your life. Yeah, this is the first and only time I will ever need your specialties. <laughs> your moment has come. Yeah, um, it feels, ooh, feels good. And what I need you to help me with is that I think that Jared Tolkien, when he coined this term, was doing some shenanigans with the Greek language. Um, and so I want to get back to that etymology. Could you explain the etymology of you catastrophe? And what he's doing with that word a little bit? Yeah. Um, yeah, great question. Uh, it's probably best to start with the, the English word that we all kind of know is, as catastrophe. Actually has a sort of Greek origin. And it, it has its origin in two words. Uh, one, kata, which is just a preposition, and strefo. Katastrefo would be the word put together. And that's a word that was very common early in Greek, had a long history. Strefo just means to turn. And kata means to like overturn. If you put that together, it's a preposition, right? So if you put kata and strafo together, it means like to overturn. But it also had a particular use in Greek drama, which I'm sure we could talk about in a bit. But just to, at the very base level, katastrefo means a sort of turning over, a sort of turning about. Um, and then that there's a little prefix at the very beginning of the word, uh, ooh, um, epsilon, upsilon. Um, and it means just good or well-pleasing. Um, another uh, instance where that is used is in the word a eulogy or to eulogize, which would be to say pleasing words, about good words to somebody, right? Um, so an ooh catastrophe would be a sort of good turning about, a good overturning. Um, it, I think that we can nuance that definition as it's applied to sort of classical drama, but uh, just linguistically, that he's he's sort of going back to that classical definition, um, uh, original meaning, and sort of kind of playing with it a bit. Because yeah. we typically think of a catastrophe in English as a sort of um, calamity, right? right? Something that's quite bad. Right. right. Yeah, I think that's right. So, Dan, give us a little bit more of an <clears throat> understanding of the original context that Tolkien used this word in. I know he wrote it in a letter, but then there's this essay on fairy stories. Right. So this, uh, this essay— um, Actually originated as a uh, as a lecture uh, that he gave. Uh, it's a very long uh, essay. I um, I've I've read it now a few times. It's one of my favorite uh, little things to to return to uh, in thinking about the imagination, thinking about stories, the way that stories work, uh, and especially thinking about uh, fairy stories uh, or stories that uh, involve this kind of this sense of wonder, this sense of magic. Uh, Tolkien calls it the perilous 
realm. It's the realm that we go to when we are enchanted, mm, he mm. says. Um, and he, he, throughout this at, at length with many examples, uh, sorting kind of what counts as a fairy story, what doesn't right. count as a fairy story, okay, over many pages, uh, he comes to the conclusion that the central feature of a fairy story is this theme of you catastrophe. So let me just read this, uh, this passage from uh, almost the end uh, of, of the essay uh, where, he, where he says, uh, at least I would say that tragedy is the true form of drama. So that's uh, in, in Greek tragedy, we have catastrophes, discatastrophes, uh, where things unravel. You might think of the end of uh, Oedipus, uh, the king, uh, where uh, we've we've gone on for several acts and things have uh, you know they're they're talking and they're talking and they're talking, but then all at once, somewhere fairly close to the end of the action, things start to unravel mm. very fast, and that's the the catastrophe. And he thinks that that's uh, the essential element in in drama. He calls it its highest function. But the opposite is true of fairy story, since we do not appear to possess a word that expresses this opposite. I will call it eucatastrophe. The, catas- the eucatastrophic tale is the true form of fairy tale and its highest function. The consolation of fairy stories, the joy of the happy ending, or more correctly, the good catastrophe, the sudden joyous turn, for there is no true end to a fairy tale. This joy, which is one of the things which fairy stories can produce supremely well, is not essentially escapist or fugitive. In its fairy tale or other world setting, it is a sudden and miraculous grace. <clears throat> never to be encounter, never to be counted on to recur. It does not deny the existence of discatastrophe, of sorrow and failure. The possibilities of these is necessary to the joy of deliverance. It denies, in the face of much evidence, if you will, universal final defeat, and insofar is evangelium, giving a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. Mm-hmm. So that's the uh, that's the origin of this. this yes, yes. And so in this essay, he connects it to the Christmas story. So we we finally come around to this term and why I thought of it when I thought of the Christmas episode. So John, draw that line for us. You've heard this kind of explanation of what eucatastrophe is and how he coined it in his discussion of fairy story. Why is this term significant for those of us reflecting on the nativity and the Christmas story? Sure. Well, the... The kind of key there as it relates to kind of Christian narrative um, is that it is a turning to the good, right? It's a good that arises in the midst of something that is not good, right? Uh, Which is as true in Tolkien, as I'm sure we'll discuss, as it is in the nativity narrative, or for that matter, the entire Christian biblical corpus. For example, to begin with, right, we have this fall, we have the fall of man, but it's from the fall of man that proceeds the opportunity of salvation later on, right? And it is from the uh, from the kind of fallen state 
of man and the inauspicious circumstances of intertestamental Judea that Jesus arises, right? That Jesus is born. And of course, by the end of the tale, right, uh, when Jesus dies in this seemingly desperate, seemingly hopeless situation that again, in a single moment of genuine surprise, but also, you know, genuine necessity, uh, Christ is, you know, Christ comes back. So, it's baked into the very kind of Christian idea about the good or the idea about sort of how the good is accomplished for man that sudden goods arise out of out of seemingly desperate and seemingly normalized desperate circumstances. That is the natural state for man to have no hope, yeah. but that there is a unique and kind of distinct hope that one can point to certain occasions as arising. Yeah. And I think to untangle that even a little bit further, we have to figure out how to differentiate deus ex machina, you know, that literary mm-hmm. device where the hand of the God <clears throat> of God reaches in and, and saves the story inexplicably. And this idea of catastrophe. Dan, do you think that you could maybe throw some attempts at differentiating those two ideas? And I think that plays into why catastrophe is specifically Christian. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, for those not familiar with the uh, the Deus ex machina uh, concept, it's it was frequent in in Greek dramas for uh, the, uh, the the tragedy to reach such a point of tension that there's there's really no way for the protagonist to escape the the trap that's that's closing on them, and so they would actually have some kind of machine. Uh, some kind of crane mechanism or something that would uh, swing onto the stage uh, an actor portraying one of the gods. And the god would swoop in at the last moment, typically in the very last scene, and uh, rescue uh, the heroes. You know, I I think of uh, an easy example would be um, Iphigenia. Uh, at Aulis, uh, the play of, of Euripides, where uh, they're they're fleeing uh, captivity uh, there, and uh, Athena uh, swoops in. I'm sorry, it's it's Iphigenia Tauris uh, is is this one where where uh, Athena swoops in right at the end. The, the king, the Taurian king, is is on the the trail of Orestes and uh, Iphigenia, and uh, the goddess uh, swoops in, and some people. Uh, not myself, uh, but some people feel that that uh, a deus ex machina element in a story is almost cheating, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that uh, the author has worked themselves into a fix and you have this uh, situation that really can't be resolved uh, in any kind of organic way, a way that's organic to the plot, organic to uh, the characters or the world that they're in. And so they have to introduce this thing from outside that's completely artificial and just to, you know, wrap it all up. And, and there's a, some people, again, not myself, uh, feel that, that, uh, there's something deeply unsatisfying mm-hmm. in a deus ex machina ending to a story because, um, it's discontinuous with the character development that we've, that we've seen so far. Uh, and you, resolve the tension you end the story but not in a way that that uh really um brings a resolution uh to uh to to you as as the reader or the audience of of the drama 
Yeah, and so how would you would you differentiate that from eucatastrophe? Well, yes. Yeah, so I, I I think just reverse everything uh, that I just said as the the criticisms uh, for uh, for the Deus Ex Machina. Now, one of the reasons I kept saying uh, not me is because I do think that in the context of Greek tragedy, uh, the Deus Ex Machina device is an expected literary device, and once you Accustom yourself to, to to that as the progression of uh, the literature. It doesn't feel as unsatisfying. Okay, um, but I do think there's something different with uh, with Tolkien's notion of of you catastrophe, where you can kind of see that this sudden turn that turns towards hope or uh, delivers from uh, from danger or or from from certain doom uh, was meant all along that the story was building uh, towards that. Uh, in, in the next pa- paragraph after uh, what, I, what I read, he said, even modern fairy stories can produce this effect sometimes. It is not an easy thing to do. It depends on the whole story, which is the setting of the turn, and yet it reflects a gl- glory backwards. So this notion that the glory of the catastrophe at the end has to be organically implied and reflects its glory back over the whole tale. And you, from from the perspective of the end, you can kind of look backwards and, and say, "Aha! It was it was intended uh, all along." I'm reminded of the uh, the O Felix culpa in in the liturgy that that even from the very fall of Adam, there's a looking forward to. Uh, the the resurrection of Christ. Yeah, I think another way to state kind of the difference would be uh, using an illustration could be Lord of the Rings itself. <clears throat> so, you uh, catastrophe is Frodo giving into the inevitable pull of the ring, and he puts it on right when you think he's going to throw it in Mount Doom. He says he's not going to because he wants to keep the ring for himself. But because of a prior act of kindness, Gollum you know, grabs the ring and then he falls in. So that catastrophe is the inevitable drive of the story, but it's a sudden turn that's for the good. Whereas the eagle is showing up outside of the, you know, the mountain moments later, that's more on the deuce ex machina level where it's not necessarily the inevitable drive of the story. Um, those are, mm-hmm. are two ways you could kind of illustrate the difference literarily. If I could qualify kind of the role of... <clears throat> The outs- the outsider divine coming in and affecting all of this, both in terms of Tolkien and in terms of Greek tragedy, I think we can make that distinction a little clearer. So, in Tolkien, for example, outside of Lord of the Rings, you have the Silmarillion, which everyone thinks that they should read and then never actually reads. Um, I don't remember how far I actually got in, but I know I read the first part. And in the first part— I, I've read it multiple times. I think it's very good. Well, <laughs> uh, in the first part, during the creation of the world, right, Tolkien's world here, the the world is sung into existence, right? And it's clear that it's basically sung through these kind of agents, these angelic figures created by the Tolkien facsimile of God, right? And one of them— Melkor is singing a disharmony, right? Is intentionally trying to sing a, a melody that does not work in the midst of this, in the midst of this harmony. And yet, Tolkien describes as Melkor is doing so that no matter what false note he tries to sing, that uh, uh, Iluvatar, right, God, Ea, um, basically just reflects or responds with his own song or his own melody that 
brings that in, right? So no matter how much evil this kind of evil source, this kind of Satan analog, tries to insert into the world and successfully inserts into the world, he can only do so with the kind of omniscient, omnipotent power responding with a melody that ends up turning that disharmony into a new harmony, mm. right? And so, again, this kind of evil substratum in the creation of the universe ends up being accounted for by by creation, right? Yeah. Um, and that, I think, in its own way, is symbolic of eucatastrophe at its core. That essentially what is what is by all appearances evil and what is kind of by intention evil can be accounted for through the right confluence of events. So, for example, you were mentioning um, uh, Iphigenia in Aulis, another Euripides play, um, which really shows the opposite of this is... Um, is what's it called? Uh, Orestes. Yeah. Um, for those of you who have read um, the Orestia by Aeschylus, uh, the more kind of the more popular, the more uh, the more vanilla version of the uh, Orestes story, um, read the Orestes. It's a huge diversion and a surprising diversion where you don't have this kind of you catastrophic situation where the house of Atreus and the curse of the house of Atreus leads to Orestes being in this horrible position where he's killed his father and must be avenged. But then because of his situation, is able to make his way back through Athena's help, again, through divine help, to a natural conclusion with the trial in Athens. The Euripidean version of the story, simply put, involves him not receiving divine help, him being pushed to such a desperate edge where he takes Helen and Menelaus's daughter captive and is going to throw her off a building. And then suddenly the god shows up and says, wait, hold on, stop, right? It's a true intrusion in that point. So we have the same story, one of which is eucatastrophic, right? One which has the involvement of the gods working cleverly and kind of properly shepherding all the aspects of the story in such a way that all of these negative, all of these sinful or all of these bad situations all end up with this surprising and yet joyful conclusion, then you have the Euripidean version where it's not you catastrophic at all. It's merely catastrophic. <laughs> and then and then there's this accidental fix on the part of this Deus Ex Machina approach. So, Mitch, I want to bring you in because coming back to the Christian story, Tolkien mentions specifically incarnation and the resurrection as you catastrophic. Mm. And now that we kind of have this broader understanding of that term, how are specifically the incarnation and resurrection you catastrophic? And as Tolkien said in that, an evangelium, you know, good news for human beings. Right. I think that's the biggest connection here, that he's connecting this, this turn in the story, that uh, this, this pleasing turn in the story um, with a sort of, uh, in the Latin evangelium, right? Or in, which is actually a Greek word. Uh, the evangelion, right? The Greeks always had it first. The Greeks always had it first. The euangelion, the good news, the gospel, right? So there's, there's a, that you root, and there's yeah, which again goes back to the importance of of um, of knowing Greek for one. <laughs> no, no, number two, and um, it's a reminder that this this whole turn serves a pleasing and good end. The best example of this must be uh, the story in Genesis. Right, where right after the fall, you have what theologians and philosophers call the proto evangelium, the first mention of the gospel in Genesis one twenty eight or uh, three eighteen. 
Is it is it three eighteen or is it one twenty eight? I can't remember. Go look at them in both Genesis. up. It's yeah. in Genesis. <laughs> I believe it's in Genesis three eighteen, uh, not one twenty eight. That's the creation mandate. Uh, but in Genesis three eighteen, you have this first mention of uh, when God is meeting out the curses that are a result of the fall. He mentions that the way that the, all this the story is going to be unraveled, it's going to be brought to a sort of a you catastrophe, is when the seed of the woman uh, crushes the head of the serpent. And so right there, right after the story completely unravels where God creates a perfect man, they live in perfect unity with God, they have a perfect communion with, with him, uh, and then they they mess all that up instead of relying on God and trusting his wisdom to define what was right and good. They decided to define what was true and good based upon their own reason. They didn't have, place any sort of faith or trust in God. They tried to define what was good and wrong themselves. And so then they, they eat the fruit and then they blame each other. Then things start to te- deteriorate and they have to leave. Right. Uh, but right there, as the story is unraveling, there's this first mention of, of, of the pleasing result that will come as a result of, of all this fall. And this goes back to the, the Easter liturgy, the Felix Culpa, um, because what did St. Ambrose said? Uh, oh, joy. No, maybe this is Augustine. I can't remember something about, um, perhaps you remember the quote better than I do, but, uh, you know, oh, oh, pleasing fault that would bring such a redeemer, right? Is this the full, as the full quote there. Um, and what that is referring to is this, the connection between the first mention of the gospel in Genesis and the eventual uh, return of that in the gospels, where Jesus um, is the inevitable result of this fall that happened thousands of years earlier, right? So, and and if you think about that as a narrative, from a narrative that started in Genesis and then concludes with Revelation, uh, the thing that is that moment of eucatastrophe, um, that 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 turning the world upside down is uh, when God enters into the story. And maybe that's a good way to distinguish between ex machina uh, and forgive me for not knowing Latin. Uh, I knew the better one. Um, <laughs> the, the, maybe that's the moment where um, ex machina, uh, God out of the machine uh, meets sort of the eucatastrophe because if, if, if the God out of the machine is sort of, um, the divine hand working explicitly to sort of like save the situation. Uh, you catastrophe is maybe a pleasing, the same pleasing result, but something that bubbles up from within the story. And in the incarnation, we kind of see, we see both of those things happening, right? We see uh, God interjecting himself into the story, but also this was the plan for the story all along. The plan for the story all along was that the Messiah would come, that all that was broken and shattered would be made right. Um, And this has particular, I think, maybe is most acute in sort of our anthropology, right? If the main problem with the fall was that man relied upon their own wisdom to define what was right and good, we needed a perfect man to come and live and show us uh, what it would be like to rely upon God or himself. In this case, since he's divine, I'm not trying to commit a heresy here, um, to, to define what is true and good and beautiful and right and wrong, right? And so then, and therefore inviting us to do the same, right? So that Eucharistic moment uh, can um, is a sort of invitation then for us to both recognize the benefit of that, but also um, see the entire story 
as a eucatastrophe, the entire story of human history. And I think that's, I don't know if it's in this essay, but he invites us to see, uh, Tolkien does say specifically elsewhere that he sees that point, all of human history, the eucatastrophe is the incarnation. Yeah, that's right. And looking at that story, you, you see mankind's condition over and over again illustrated as corrupt. And when God becomes man, you're like, oh no, now he's one of us. You know, this is this is bad, but that it ends up being the turn that le- leads to salvation. And you can you can see there that it's not this artificial break with everything that had come before, as though God had worked Himself into a corner and just oh, I don't I, you know as the as the writer of this plot, he's like oh I don't know what to do with my main characters. You know they've swing into Jesus. Yeah, okay, so well I guess we're just gonna throwing someone off the roof at this point. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. It, it's it's altogether different from that, and you see that because it's right there in uh, the beginning of Genesis that this is uh, where we're heading all along. Now you know. If if you were uh, you know some someone in in the Old Testament, you might not have fully understood sure. that this is where we're heading all along. And in some way, you have to have that light and that glory that shines its light backwards over the story from the end all the way back to the beginning. You have to. Uh, I, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of stories where I have to read it a second time, right? You know, because you get to the ending and. Suddenly the ending changes everything and you have to go back and you have to read all those scenes a second time and they have a completely new meaning. Uh, I, I see the dead Old people. Testament is yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this one's a little different. <laughs> oh, I see resurrected people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, but we can see that that it's not an artificial thing. It's organic. Uh yeah, to and, the story. And where we yeah. were heading yeah. from the beginning. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it can still be organic with the interaction of God as part of that system, of course. Right. Like um, Boethius in Consolation of Philosophy deals with this um, when he's kind of working through the question of free will. How is free will possible in a world of cause and effect, right? And he describes a, a happy turning, a happy chance. He describes a man who is plowing a field. Uh, and if I recall correctly, as he's plowing the field, he comes upon a stash of gold. Right. And how we would describe this as, again, a happy chance because him plowing the field didn't cause the gold to be there. Right. And yet, is it really random? Did, you know, did the gold just arise out of nowhere? No. But Boethius makes the case that probably person A dug the gold down there and buried it. And then person B just happened to be plowing in that in that field. And two completely innocuous events that were not good in and of themselves happened to interact in a way that was beneficial, right? So the interaction of God and man can be person A and B, right? We can be doing our own thing. God can be doing his own thing. And it's the interaction of those things that mundane, well, not that you'd call anything God does as mundane, but uh, seemingly mundane, ordinary, there we go, um, can come together in a organic and confluential good. Mm-hmm. So, so far, our conversation has been going from this term, eucatastrophe, towards the nativity, you know, using that term to help us to understand the Christmas story. But in the essay, it seems like Tolkien does it the opposite move as well, mm-hmm. that the truth of the Christmas story helps us to read other stories differently and better. So, Dan, how does this help us to see value in fairy stories, fictional stories, and what Tolkien would call the truth of them? Right, right, yeah. So he makes the he makes the point that um, you know 
uh, there is a kind of literature out there that is escapist where we're trying to get away from uh, reality. And he, he says the, the most powerful one is death, that we uh, have a, potentially a problem with death. We're afraid of death. And so we like to read tales in which a mortal somehow finds immortality and escapes from that from that situation. Right. Uh, and he says, OK, that, that's maybe fine. Uh, you know, that's that's a literary thing that we do. But that's that's not the heart of these fairy stories, because, in fact, it's supposed to be the other way around that. What we find in the perilous realm, this yeah. other world that is somehow outside of our ordinary daily world, it's somehow magical. It's somehow not constrained by uh, the limitations of physics and, and these yeah. kinds of things. What we find there is, in fact, truth. We find there reality because uh, if they're crafted well, they are taking the truth of this world and presenting it to us more clearly than we can see it mm. uh, in this world. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of a, a passage in Plotinus uh, where he's reflecting on uh, statues of the gods, you know, and uh, there's a passage in, in Plato where uh, Socrates thinks that art is always an imitation of an imitation because the realities that we experience here are imitations of the divine realm mm. and an artist is simply painting a copy of what's already a, a copy okay uh, but plotinus suggests that in fact the artist in creating a statue say of zeus is not looking at some dude who happens to look like zeus he in fact is uh, turning his mind to something transcendent uh, and divine and creating that in stone. And in fact, that work of art that he makes in stone might be a clearer reflection of uh, that Zeus masculinity, whatever that represents, okay, than any particular dude on the street. Sure. Okay. Um, and so I think that that is the function here uh, of fairy stories that the, um, and of you catastrophe in literature generally is that the true thing mm. is the incarnation and Christ's death and resurrection. And these stories are successful insofar as they see that deep structure in the reality of things and then reflect that back to us in a, clearer way than we could perhaps perceive in our quotidian real mm. world. Yeah. If I have a corollary, a Tolkien corollary to that, uh, I do think it's interesting how, how you know, Plato's presentation of the role of art, the role of narrative is distinctly negative, right? Again, imitation of an imitation. Right? Well, we, we, we might want to fight about that. Sure. Yeah. Okay. I would like that. Um, <laughs> whereas Plotinus is more positive that basically having this, having this constructed thing, basically trends upward as opposed to trends downward. You're inviting a little bit of divine or the divine or the understanding thereof by crafting it in, the, in, in narrative, in art, in, in craft. Um, Tolkien takes the latter stance. I don't remember where it was, but Tolkien, I believe in his letters, talked about basically mythopoeia, the creation of, of narrative, as sort of a sub-creation, right? That I am basically being not literally a god but or but being a lesser 
a lesser version of God in a way by participating in his chief operation, that being creation, right? Now, mine is nothing like his, right? But neither by quantity or quality. Um, but it's, in a way, almost a form of worship of God to participate in his primary operation. Uh, I use the example of when my, you know, my two-year-old son tries drawing something or writing something, right? Obviously, it's it's not as good as what I can do, I assume. But, <laughs> you know, it's there's something there's something wholesome about it. There's something good about you know, one's, oh, this is going to sound vain, creation, um, uh, participating in, in in your operations and very likely our participation in God's operations. Yeah. And I probably, I mean, going back to what you were saying, Dan, those stories that are most effective, that are most sort of transformative are stories that are sort of participating in that sort of, in the, in echoes of that, of the evangelium, right? Of this, you, you, you catastrophic moment, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so we could probably just go on for days talking about how we can sort of um, analyze beautiful pieces of literature and and pick little mo- little echoes of of these turns that can happen in the context of the full narrative, but also in the smaller narratives that you might see, you know, in, in a particular story. You know, a great example would be um, like Brothers Karamazov at the end of Brothers, Kar- Brothers K, where you have the main character um, who has a Russian name, and so I dare not attempt it at this point, um, <clears throat> who is sort of presiding over this well, and I'm going to give away the ending, but uh, but spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! You <laughs> um, can't talk about you catastrophes without spoilers. They're all at the end of the story. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> yeah. that's a great point. And well, and, and actually, the ending of Brothers K is is quite confusing, and most people don't really like it because it doesn't feel very cathartic, right? It doesn't feel like it's it's actually an ending. And but if viewed from this perspective, there's actually a lot of uh, a value that this ending has because you have this, the main character presiding over the, the sort of funeral, um, a dirge of the, of, of a, of a child, of an innocent child. And he brings to mind those, his friends that are, the, he brings to their mind the life that this child lived and said, as a sort of call to action. So if we, if we would, but remember the life that this person lived, his death will have infinite amount of meaning in our own lives when we try to live the way that he lived. And so this thing, we rejected him while he was on earth because he was unpopular, but now that he's dead, he will live on in our minds Mm. in a more acute way. And he, as a result, will change the way we live. Mm. So you can already hear the sort of Christian echoing, uh, uh, the sort of you catastrophic moment where this, where this innocent has died. Which is the main question of brother brothers K, right? Um, if an innocent dies, um, would you allow that to happen so that the world would be changed? That's the moral question of brothers K, um, and then that ultimately happens. Mm-hmm. And then the answer is yes. That that was a beautiful uh, exchange, sort of, uh, because it, it'll forever now uh, change the way that we lived. Whereas before, if he had lived, then none of the characters in the story would have changed. They would have just kept rejecting the little boy and. Yeah, and let, let me be the one to offer an example that's not Russian literature or an, a, a reference from Plotinus, and that is there's a great little book by Jaron Bars named Echoes of Eden, where he goes through different literary selections that are echoing the Evangelium, the the promise, the catastrophe, and one of them is Harry Potter, book seven, <laughs> when Harry goes to face Voldemort one on one, and he dies. 
and it could be a tragedy right there. But he happens to be one of the Horcruxes, spoiler alert, and so he lives, and it's the end of evil. It's just a recent example of this same, it isn't arbitrarily inserted, it's where the whole story had been going for thousands and thousands of pages for, you know, 10 years, um, but it's a sudden turn that it goes toward good, and I think all great stories achieve some kind of resonance with you, Catastrophe. I mean, even the, the simplest stories like Winnie the Pooh, mm-hmm. right, and, and Winnie the Pooh, one of my favorite Winnie the Pooh stories. You're going to have to pull this together for us. Yeah. yeah. No, I, that that's why I'm here, John. <laughs> to, to pull this whole podcast together. Okay. <laughs> that was an overplay. But uh, <laughs> um, Winnie the Pooh. Uh, it, there's it's Winnie the Pooh has several short stories about Winnie the Pooh, right? And in one particular short story, Piglet and Pooh find a set of tracks. And they're, they're fearful that these tracks are actually a woozle, which is a... Who knows what that is? No one knows, but it, it's a scary animal. And so they, but yet they're like kind of tra- tracing the tracks. Little did they know they're actually walking in circles because they're following actually Pooh's tracks. They were not a Woozle's tracks. And so the tracks get more and more because they're going in circles. And so they see more and more tracks and then they begin to get really scared. Like they're being chased by this Woozle. Come to find out the the sort of uh, the turning of the moment uh, right when they are, one Piglet runs away and Pooh is about ready to sort of succumb to the Woozle. Um, he finds uh, some other character comes in and says, ah, you're actually just following your own foot, <laughs> footprints. <laughs> the thing that scared you the most. Uh, it's a, So right at this moment there's a sudden turn um where you know we realize that the 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 pain all along was actually just you know you follow your own footsteps right that that brings up something that i I wanted to link in here which is that the moment of you catastrophe is often accompanied by a moment of recognition Mm. Okay, an onomenesis. Mm. This where where some character is unmasked, or the protagonist comes to some realization that mm-hmm. what they thought was true is not actually true. So, of course, the archetype of this is Christ. That we have this mystery of who the Messiah would be and yeah. what the what character the Messiah would come. And finally, in the end, we have this unmasking this uh, of the mystery unveiling and, and we have a moment of recognition. But you can think of lots of examples of this in uh, in, in literature, you know, in the Odyssey uh, where things seem like they're kind of falling apart at the home of Odysseus mm-hmm. and it's, it's all up for yeah. uh, Penelope. She's going to have to marry one of these suitors. How is he ever going to figure this out? Uh, but the real identity of Odysseus is is lifted and he comes back home. He returns and puts everything to right. Or uh, for Tolkien, we can think of Aragorn uh, and his unmasking of, you know, that he really is uh, the king and he's he's not just some uh, ranger from the north. Yeah. I love that example in the Odyssey because you have that really weird scene where the suitors have that strange, like, paranormal vision. (laughs) <laughs> before Odysseus's and it's the recognition is starting to happen before uh-huh. they even know who Odysseus is. Yeah, it's a great yeah. point. Yeah, there's a sort of uh, uh, reflection that happened. Uh, a reflection that happens after the fact that helps you see everything that occurred up yeah. to that point mm-hmm. in from a completely different light. And not all great stories um, can have picture that well, right? Because um, it's almost like you're telling, as the author, you're telling the story two ways, 
but the reader doesn't find out that there's two stories going on mm-hmm. until the very end, mm-hmm. right? And so it, it, it's a true it's a true gift of the artist. Only the greatest artists uh, can can sort of bring this to fruition uh, in a compelling way. I'm sure a lot of people have tried it in a non-compelling way, but it just is a reminder that um, that the greatest stories are usually told by the greatest artists. Yeah, and which I think to kind of cap it off the conversation, the Odyssey is an interesting example because it's written presumably a thousand years before Christ. And yet it, it, it echoes something that's going to happen in the future. And so there's a greater artist over it all who's baked these deeper truths into the realities of our universe. Guys, this, uh, this conversation has brought me so much joy and this has been a real gift for me this Christmas season. So I appreciate you being here for it. I'm happy to be present. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Classical Etc. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you liked this episode, consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with a friend. A huge thank you to the Memoria Press Podcast Network for hosting our show. Be sure to check out all the great podcasts there. As always, I'm Shane Saxon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network, providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit memoriapress.com. To connect with us, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.